They say you can learn a lot from a person by how they live, by watching their actions and reactions, how they respond in the moment, what they do in the face of opposition. And if this person is worthy of imitation, worthy of becoming like, worthy of taking our cues, the only way then is to get to know them by following their directions and by listening to their instructions. And if we want to be just like Jesus, we need to get to know him too. We need to read how he responded in the moment, what he did in the face of opposition, how he lived, how he spoke, his actions and reactions. You want to be just like Jesus? Follow him. I'm good. Y'all good? I'm good. Yeah, there we go. I am the youngest in my family. I have two older brothers. And if, if let me just by show of hands, if you're the youngest in your family, give me a, give me a, yes, my brethren and sisters. <laughs> yes. So growing up in the, uh, basically in the 90s, growing up in the 90s, uh, I had two older brothers and the uh, thrust of all of our existence hinged upon whenever we would go out somewhere uh, together as a family, there had to be uh, at some point a brawl of sorts for who got to sit in the front seat. Anybody else? It was always an argument. It was always uh, a, a fight. Most times, because we were brothers, it was there were fists involved, <laughs> and elbows, and sometimes biting. And so, especially if we were going somewhere with my dad, I don't know what it was, but for some reason, if we were just if dad was going and all three of us were going, then it was just an all-out brawl. Uh, and so, being the youngest, you can imagine how many times I won uh, the front seat. Privilege. It was this. Just <laughs> go ahead and get rid of all of your curiosity. But I never in the history of all mankind ever got to sit in the front seat while my brothers sat in the back seat. And so it was really special in the times when I would go somewhere with my dad just by myself because apparently in the 90s, like they didn't really care if you were five years old. You could sit in the front seat if your parents said you could sit in the front seat, right? And I don't remember ever wearing a seatbelt, but somehow we survived and somehow we lived. And so I never got to have this honor when I, whenever I was with my brothers. And for some reason, it's still important to this day. I, I have a group of guys that I meet with once a week, and every time we go to Chick-fil-A, it is who's going to be in the front seat. And they don't realize that I've got the key with the lock and everything else, but they still run to get to the front seat because we always want to feel like we're in the place of importance, like we're in a position of honor. And in our culture, in our society, that front seat for a kid is like, that's it, right? is the place of honor. And so we're going to look today at Mark chapter 10 and realize that, is, guess what? The disciples were no different from us in that they were always jockeying and trying to position themselves into places of honor within Jesus's group and within uh, what they thought was the coming kingdom uh, and restoration of Israel. And so we're going to look at Mark uh, chapter 10. If you've got your, bio, uh, your uh, church app, then you can follow along with the notes there. Uh, it's got some more details in it than the bulletin, but if you want to use the bulletin, that's good too. But we've already talked about this a little bit in Mark chapter 9. We see, hello, hi. <laughs> the lights come on instantly now. Uh, 
in Mark chapter 9, we've already seen a little bit of this with the disciples and them and Jesus trying to teach them what it means to be great. And so I titled this this morning, How Not to Be Great, uh, because what we're going to see is that the disciples, much like us, uh, did not learn the lesson the first time or the second time, and usually not even the third and the fourth time. Uh, and so before we jump into Mark chapter 10, let's pray. God, we do thank you for this time of year that we get to celebrate you in such a grand fashion. Uh, God, that uh, so many uh, churches and so many people all around the world, Father, are just pulling out all the stops and all the decorations and all of our heart, hearts and minds' attention is focused on celebrating Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that that would be something that we carry with us in our hearts, in our minds, in our attitudes and actions and the words that we say. Uh, God, throughout the rest of the season and through into the coming year, Father, uh, that we would continue to honor you and to glorify you and to worship you with everything that we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I just want to read Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 35 and go through 45. We're going to read through the whole thing and then start breaking this thing down a little bit to see how the disciples are giving us a great example of what not to do and how Jesus gives a wonderful example of everything that we should be doing this time of year and the rest of our lives. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35, he says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want for me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be, I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became, began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, like I said, if you remember Mark chapter 9, Jesus actually gives the disciples similar instructions. But here we actually have a little bit different account of this. So the request was made. And James and John show up, and it, actually, if you go back and look in the uh, book of Matthew, you get a different take on this same interaction. Uh, most likely, this was, this was the same interaction recorded in two different Gospels. But in Matthew's Gospel, it's actually James and John's mother who's a part of the conversation as well. And so she, being the uh, loving mother that I'm sure she was, was trying to make sure that her boys were going to be set up well in the coming kingdom of God that they all believe Jesus was going to establish. And so, as you know, uh, from weeks past, Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. And in Mark's gospel, you get this sense of urgency that Jesus is now moving to Jeru towards Jerusalem with a purpose, with intention. 
He's not really making a lot of stops along the way. He is moving towards Jerusalem because he knows that the time is coming near for the crucifixion and for him to die and later be resurrected on the third day. And so as the disciples are picking up on these cues from Jesus, they start increasing their intensity of making sure that they're going to be in the right place at the right time in order to be in, in the positions of leadership, in the positions of honor. And so I just labeled uh, James and John's mother the first snowplow mom or snowplow parent. And if you've never heard that term, it's the idea that parents are now like plowing ahead of their children to make sure that there are no obstacles in their way to be able to get to what they think that their children need or should want. And so you got this mother who is concerned about her two boys, and, and rightfully so, but you have this uh, James and John going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. And now if you're a parent, you know exactly what this feels like, right? Because you you've had your kids come up to you and say, okay, I got to ask you a question, but just say yes. <laughs> like, will you just say yes, right? And so James and John come up to Jesus. They're ignoring Everything that Jesus just said earlier in Mark about how he's going to suffer, he is going to die. He is going to uh, not just die, but he's going to die a pretty brutal death. He has told them this very plainly. And James and John just seem to kind of gloss over that. But then Jesus responds in verse 36. He said to them, what do you want for me to do for you? And I think it's really interesting that Jesus when he has his disciples come up and ask him, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. Whatever we're about to say, we want you to just say yes. And Jesus doesn't actually say, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. But he, he, tells, he says, what do you want? He's curious to know the question. And I don't think it's because Jesus didn't know what they were about to ask. I think he was fully aware of what they were about to ask. And he's fully aware that it's not going to happen. And he's, but he wants them to hear themselves out loud saying, can we please sit on the left and on the right of you when you enter into your glory? Because I'm sure that these, this conversation after Jesus' death, his resurrection and ascension, and the Holy Spirit comes down and the disciples start spreading the gospel like wildfire through wildfire through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure at some point James and John probably remembered back to this conversation and thought, man, that was a really dumb question. <laughs> that was really stupid of us to ask, to have the audacity to ask Jesus to be in this position of power, in this position of authority. But isn't that just like us? So Jesus doesn't say no but he asked them what their question was. In verse 37, they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, I'm sure at this point, James and John were probably uh, thinking that they were so pious and so uh, thoughtful and religious that they didn't ask Jesus specifically, like, which one was going to be at the left and which one was going to be at the right. They were like, we'll work that out later. But just want to make sure that James and John, we're set up to be in the position of authority, to be in this position of power. And through, my, through digging and through studying this passage, one of the things that I realized was that James and John were really trying to get in on a little bit of the, of the family business. 
because I didn't know this until I went back and looked at the lineages of Jesus and, and his family and his extended family. But most scholars believe that Zebedee and Salome, which was James and John's mother, James and John's mother, Salome, was Mary's sister, which makes James and John Jesus' first cousin. And so that kind of adds this whole other dimension to it, where James and John are expecting Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom to restore Israel to their glory, right here, right now. He's going, he's going to Jerusalem, so this is, the, the stuff is about to go down, right? And so as they're going to Jerusalem, James and John are going, well, if Jesus is going to be in charge, and, by, and he very well should be, because th- they believe at this point that he is definitely the Messiah, but if he's going to be the one in, in charge, then we're his first cousins. We're his disciples. We've been with him this entire time. Surely Jesus would want to put us at, at his right and his left and kind of be his right hand and left hand men, right? And so what they were asking for was a position of authority. And what Jesus reminds them of is that you need to be careful what you request. You need to be careful what you ask for. And I purposely put, it, put that up because it ends in a preposition, and I know that bugs some of you. So, <laughs> but be careful what you ask for. Because in verse 38, he says, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And so this exchange reinforces the idea that even Jesus' closest disciples still don't have a full grasp of what is about to happen. They're still thinking in earthly, in earthly ways. They're still thinking about the physical kingdom of God. They're not considering that this has all been leading up to not just a redemption of the nation of Israel, but a redemption of all humanity for all time. So they have this really narrow, small view of what God is doing. And as I read this, I can't help but think, God, how many times have I had such a narrow view of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish in my life? How many times have I asked in my prayers what I now look back on and go, that was a really dumb request. I really didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear, which is exactly what Jesus said over and over and over again. When he said some of his most important things, he would specifically say, you got to open up. you got to open up your ears spiritually and listen to what I'm about to say. And open up your spiritual eyes and look at what, I'm about to, what I'm about to do. Because otherwise we just have this narrow view and we miss it. And I think it's really easy for us to look back at the disciples and think, man, they're a bunch of knuckleheads. Like they don't get what's going on here. They don't see that Jesus wasn't trying to establish this kingdom here on earth. That he's trying to establish this heavenly kingdom. And they just kind of gloss over the fact that Jesus is about to go and suffer and die for the sins of all of the world for all times. But remember, they're in the middle of the story. They're in the middle of this. This is all for them happening in real time. And so they don't know the end the way we know the end. And the same is true for us when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. We don't know the big picture yet. We don't see the end of the story. We're right in the middle of it. And so we have to go, God, I I don't understand. I don't see what you're doing. I don't hear exactly what you're telling me to do. But I'm going to trust and I'm going to follow and I'm going to obey. But James and John in verse 39 says, we are able. 
So Jesus just asked them, are you willing to go through what I'm about to go through? Are you willing to, are you willing to suffer the things that I'm about to suffer? And again, that narrow view of what God is up to, James and John arrogantly just like, yeah, we can handle that. It says, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And of course, the cup that Jesus is referring to and the baptism that Jesus is referring to, the, the cup uh, most likely represents the persecution that James and John were going to face. And if you do fast forward to the end of their stories, we find out that James is the first disciple uh, to die for his faith. And we also find out that John, being the youngest disciple, goes through horrible tribulation and horrible persecution and, it, and ends up dying of natural causes, but not until after a long and hard exile on the Isle of Patmos. And so Jesus is reminding them, like, look, you're going to go through the suffering for sure, but the place of honor that you're wanting is not mine to give. That, that authority belongs to God the Father exclusively. And then Jesus uh, goes on later to describe what it means to be great. But before we get to Jesus, look at verse 41. Because in the midst, in the backdrop of this conversation, whether they heard the exact conversation or they just picked up on the cues or whatever, the other ten are in the background. And I think for a lot of us, we would probably more identify with the ten, right? That we're just, they're just kind of in the background going... What's going on here? <laughs> They're trying to pull some power play. Right here is we're about to go up to Jerusalem. We're going to celebrate Passover. And all of a sudden, these sons of Zebedee, these sons of thunder, start jockeying for position. Because look at verse 41. It says, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Intense jealousy. Intense disdain. Intense disrespect. Indignant towards them. How dare they? And this certainly doesn't help the group dynamics among the disciples. And given Jesus' close relationship with the two brothers, it's pretty obvious that there were probably other conversations outside of the ones that we have recorded in Scripture where the disciples were trying to decide who was going to be the leader if this thing that Jesus is talking about, if his death is imminent, if, it, if that's going to happen, I'm sure at some point the disciples have huddled up together and going, okay, if, if Jesus isn't around, like who's the, who's the next in line? And if you think back to the disciples, you've got some pretty strong personalities in this group, right? And now all of a sudden, James and John, most likely along with their mother, <laughs> are going to Jesus and trying to get this place of honor, this place of, uh, of authority and power. And that it just shows how obvious it is that you're looking at the disciples in their most imperfect state. That the disciples are far from perfect. They're far from understanding, just like we are. And so to the ten, this conversation looks very different. Because when... The two go up to Jesus and ask, Jesus, whatever we ask you, can you just say yes? I'm sure the other ten are going, watch this. <laughs> this is going to be good because Jesus is about to really, really let them have it. Especially if you're Peter, right? Because Peter is like poster child for saying things that you shouldn't say to Jesus. 
And so Peter's probably looking at this conversation and going, oh, he, they're about to get rebuked. He's going to call him Satan. <laughs> like He's like, finally, someone else has said something worse than what I've said. And the other ten are watching this, and they go up to Jesus, and they ask this really awful question. And Jesus is like, what do you want? And the other ten are going, wait a second. All we had to do was ask? <laughs> All we had to do was just go up and ask Jesus. So to them, if you follow this conversation in real time, to them, this looks like it's going well for James and John. Until you get towards the end of the passage that we're going to get to in a minute. But what we see here is that James and John are guilty of acting on selfish ambition. But the other ten are guilty of reacting on jealousy. And I think at some point or another, we've probably been on both sides of that equation where our selfish ambition gets the better of us. And we start thinking that we deserve just a little bit more than everybody else does. And then on the other side of it is when somebody else does get a little bit more than what we think we de- they deserve, then we have to deal with the, with the jealousy that comes with that. And so really, you don't see a, a good picture of the disciples in any of this, but just to kind of give us a little bit of a visual illustration of this, I'm going to see if my child is uh, awake or asleep. Where did Grayson go? He went to the bathroom because that's what kids do <laughs> in the middle of the service. Hey, Kaylin, come on up here anyway. <laughs> He's just going to miss out but, on this. Hey, you want to bring a friend with you? Because we need two. Yeah, go ahead. I'll explain it to you because this is, a, this is so, so simple that I think we can do it even on, on the fly here. And Grayson's just going to miss out, and you'll get to tell him about it later, okay? Because I keep telling him not to go to the bathroom in the middle of the service, but he does it anyway. But, so, I've got, I told you it was going to be candy, but I upped, the, I, I upped it a little bit. So, I've got $5 here. I'm going to give one of you the $5. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this $5 to you. Uh, but what I need you to do is in your most selfish, selfish way, like this is probably the one time that your parents would allow you to do this, in your most selfish way, I want you to, in a couple of sentences, explain to me why you deserve this $5 and Kaylin does not. Can you do that? <laughs> why do you deserve it? I'm sure you could figure out, you could figure out something if you were just being really really selfish. Pretend I was going to give it to your sister. <laughs> Eyes bulge. What would you say if I was going to do that? Fight her. Huh? Fight. You would fight her? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As you can see, she's pretty tough, right? <laughs> she's like, I'll just fight her for it, and we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. So. In this in this scenario, like that, that's the most selfish thing that you could possibly do. That's physical violence, right? Like that, that really like way out of uh, the range that I was going to go. But anyway, but I'm still going to I'm going to give you this five dollars in just a second, um, because Kaylin, I want you to kind of give us an example of, I don't know, like if you were being your most selfless self, what would you say as to why she deserves the five dollars and you don't? She probably would deserve it because I might have, like, one day I didn't do my chores, and she did. 
And so maybe that would be one of the ways that she deserved it. Okay. So she, you, you didn't do something that she did, so therefore she deserves it. So I'm going to give her that $5, and that's yours, that's yours to keep. But what you see here is you see, and this, this is how it plays out in real life, right? Someone wants something, they go and they take it, even if you think you, de- you might deserve it a little bit more than them. But Jesus calls us to be selfless and to be a servant of all, and to give up our desires and our wants and our needs and everything that we think that we deserve for the sake of someone else. Don't fall. <laughs> now, what you don't know, Kaylin, is that at home I have $10 that I'm going to give you when, when we get home. Because in Jesus' kingdom, whoever is the servant of all is the greatest, Right? And so that's what's going to happen for you. But y'all give both of them a hand for helping me out right there on the fly. Y'all have a seat. Have a seat. But that's exactly how it happens. And for us as adults, it's not just a kid thing, right? It's that person that cuts in front of you in line at the grocery store. How come they get to go first? I'm sitting here waiting like we're supposed to do because that's the unwritten rule of society, right? But yet they skip me and they get to go ahead of me. Don't I deserve to do that? Because I'm in a really big hurry and I only have one item and they have 20 and they just went to the, like the express line. And we constantly say, well, don't I deserve and don't I, don't I deserve to have something that they don't. I've been great. They haven't been as great as I am. So why is the world working opposite of the way I think it should go? And Jesus lays it out for him right here in verse 42 through 45 look at this he says jesus called called them to him he's like all right guys huddle up (laughs) we're going to go through this one more time he says you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus sets the record straight for all of his disciples, not just James and John. So this private conversation that James and John might have been having with Jesus, he realizes that now we've got it. Now we have something that we've got to address with the group, right? Because it's affecting the entire group of disciples. So Jesus again gives them the definition of greatness. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And one of the things that I love, absolutely love when I read through the Gospels, is the fact that Jesus, Son of God, fully God, fully human, has all power, has all authority, can do whatever he wants to do because he is God. But yet, among his disciples, he consistently and constantly takes the role of servant and takes the role of a server and takes the role, in some cases, of even a slave. And he gives us this picture-perfect example, not just to his disciples, but to all of us, of what it means to lead without power. 
without using his power. Without, he, never, he, never plays the, he never plays the Son of God card that much all throughout, all throughout the Gospels. And I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus, that'd probably be one of the first cards that I played when the disciples start getting on my nerves or when the Pharisees keep coming at me. It'd be like, all right, look, I'm the Son of God, so what I say goes. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he continues over and over again, taking the place of a servant and welcoming children which is something that most adults would never do, especially a rabbi in a, in high, in a high respected a, a position as Jesus. And he constantly shows his disciples, whoever is going to be great among you must be the servant of all. That the path to greatness in the kingdom of God is not through selfish ambition and not through jealousy. And not through this asserting some authority or position that you have. But he modeled over and over again servant leadership. And tells his disciples, go and do likewise. Go and do the things that you've seen me do. Go and do them and even greater things. So if you know anything about the way I like, I like to preach is there's always going to be a so what so what? What does this have to do with me here and now, going into, the holidays, going into the holiday season, going into Christmas and New Year's and all the things that go with that? What does this mean for me? And look back at verse 42 because I would, I would argue that Mark's gospel is leading up to this, right, to this lesson right here in these verses. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And so for me, what, what does that mean? It means my position in the kingdom of God is servant. And that's it. There's no sitting at Jesus' right. There's no sitting at Jesus' left. Jesus said, your position in my kingdom is that of a servant. And my mission is to follow the master. He says, that's all you need to do. And he even, he even reminds this in John chapter 21, if you'll look with me. In John 21, this is shortly after uh, Jesus has this conversation with Peter. And I love Peter. God bless him. But at, right after he has this conversation with Peter, asking Peter, do you love me? And Peter responding. And after all, of the, all this conversation in verse 21 of chapter 21, it says, when Peter saw him, and if you read within the context of the verse, he's actually talking about John here. So this could be, uh, this could be running in parallel or, or after this conversation that we've been reading in Mark. And Peter saw him. He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Ouch, right? Because if you know anything about Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John were like the three. They were the three within the inner circle. James and John were brothers, which meant that not only were, were they in the inner circle, but the two of them were very tight-knit. And Peter was kind of like the third wheel in that group, a little bit. And G Peter says, what about John? But look at what Jesus says. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Again, Peter, 
narrow view. Jesus just gets done grilling him right in front of, <laughs> right in front of all the disciples. Peter goes, ah, what about that guy? And Jesus says, Peter, you, you follow me. Don't worry about John. I'm going to take care of him. <laughs> and what is it to you? I'm telling you right here, right now, you follow me. So what we see here is that Peter is kind of caught up in this comparison trap. And I don't know about you, but I found myself in this trap way more than I care to realize. Because we look around and we see, well, gosh, they've got more money than me, or they've got a better job than I do, or they've got a better family than I do. Why don't I'm following God just like they're following you? And the, I mean, the disciples had the same argument. I mean, Peter's been with Jesus the same time that James and John has been with Jesus throughout his throughout his ministry. All the rest of the disciples have been with Jesus all throughout all throughout his ministry. Why did why did James and John get some kind of extra special privilege here? Why why did they get the the blessings? So they fall into this comparison trap. Some of my notes were missing. <laughs> there we go. Amen. And the, the other trap that we fall into here is not just the comparison trap. Do I have that other one? <laughs> there it is. Because I wanted to, I added this one late. As we fall into the entitlement trap. And I'm in student ministry. I get to hear this word a lot. <laughs> because we like to think that entitlement started with the millennial generation. Let me be the first one to tell you. It did not. It started at the beginning in Genesis with, I deserve something over someone else. The $5, the promotion, the family, the car, the boat, the whatever. Anytime we start finding ourselves even thinking or acting in that attitude of, well, don't I deserve that vacation? Don't I deserve a little bit better? Because... I've been following God just like everybody else has been following God. Why don't I get all the other things that everybody else has? And it's a trap. Because when we do that, we've essentially said, God, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, let's be honest. That's what it is, right? That's the basis of sin. That's the basis of entitlement is, God, you don't understand what's going on here. I get it, I deserve fill in the blank. And Jesus has to continuously go back to his disciples and say, hey, you want to be great? Be a servant. If you want to be the greatest, he says, be a slave to all. Takes it even further. Slaves don't, get any, don't have any authority. They don't have any power. They don't get honor. They, they don't... They don't get any entitlement whatsoever. They're grateful just to be, right? Jesus says, 
Go be like the slave. Put everything, put everything that you want, everything that you think you deserve, just shove all that onto the altar and let it burn. Because what I have for you is something so much better if you will open your spiritual eyes, if you will open your spiritual ears, if you will start looking at what is actually going on here in the big picture of everything that your life has been leading up to. And Jesus is trying to, trying to explain to James and John, guys, this thing that you want, you don't know what you're asking for. And even if you did, that's not for me to decide because the people who are going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God are the people who are going to be willing to serve. They're willing to set aside their rights. They're willing to set aside the things that they think that they deserve in order to serve someone else that deserves nothing. Which is why I think it's great that we have so many volunteers in, in our church that do this selflessly every week in and week out. I get some of the best of the best with my, the team of people that we have that are our small group leaders over in student ministry. And if you ask them if they were great, they would probably say no. But if you look at what people in this place do week in and week out, and especially for, with something like Phil by Night, where we have people showing up at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, when it looks like by all indications that we're about to get rained on <laughs> and it's going to be nasty and cold and wet and yet I did not hear one person complain not one person saying oh this isn't worth it why because sometimes we do get it right and even if you look at the disciples you get a good you get a good glimpse I'm so glad that the that the account of the disciples did not end in the gospels because we get to see what happens to the disciples in the book of Acts and on further. We get to see what happens to the disciples when that helper that Jesus starts talking to him, them about right before he's about to go to the cross. He says, hey guys, I got some really great news. I'm going to send you a helper. And you're going to receive power. And you're going to be able to go and proclaim the gospel throughout the entire world. And what you get to see is guys like Peter and James and John and Thomas and all the rest of the disciples when the Holy Spirit comes on the picture. Because when the Holy Spirit comes on the scene, you see these guys that were jockeying for position, that were constantly trying to get what they deserve. You see a totally different group of disciples. You see Peter who was denying Christ to a slave girl in the courtyard, now proclaiming the gospel to thousands and thousands of people and seeing the church grow tremendously because of his confession of the gospel. And he preaches with boldness. And you see James and John. You see John writing books that we have in scripture. You see John and all the rest of the disciples going out to the, all the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel with boldness. And they weren't trying to seek some physical kingdom anymore. Because they got it. The Holy Spirit reveals to them the true nature of the gospel. 
their spiritual eyes are open, their spiritual ears are open, and you see a drastic difference in the disciples in the Gospels and the disciples in the book of Acts and even further. Why? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the only difference. These are still the same guys with all the same flaws, with all the same quirks, with all the same personality defects, but now they're empowered through the Holy Spirit. And because they're empowered through the Holy Spirit, they get to go out and they do incredible things. They turn the world upside down. They redirect the course of human history. And the repercussions of what they did are still in effect today. And I can't imagine what would happen if we did the exact same thing. If we as a church body, if we as a nation of Christians said, you know what, we're going to not try to get what we deserve, because I think we all know what we deserve, right? I'm not going after what I deserve. I'm going after being a servant. Because all throughout this, Jesus never condemns James and John for wanting to be great. You notice that? Jesus never tells them, like, guys, like, <laughs> you shouldn't be trying to get in this position here. Like, that's, that's out of bounds. No. He doesn't tell them that they shouldn't be great. He shows them the path to greatness. He says, let me redefine your idea of greatness, and then you tear after it, fellas. Go for it. And by the way, you're going to get a helper to come alongside of you. He's going to help you remember everything that I've taught you so that you'll be able to go out with boldness, with confidence, not with arrogance, not with pride, not with with all of this selfish ambition, but you're going to go out with my ambition, which is to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples everywhere you go, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And you get to see the disciples live up to that. And they didn't get it right all the time, even after the Holy Spirit came along, right? And neither do we. But in spite of that, we still see them becoming great in the kingdom of God. Not because of what they brought to the table. Not because they deserved it. Not because they were part of Jesus' family. Not because they were Jesus' disciples. It has nothing to do with that. It's because they were servants. They became slaves to all. They put themselves in the lowest positions so that they can raise Christ to the highest position and glorify him through everything. And that's my prayer for all of us. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you provided us with the perfect example of what it means to be great in your kingdom, in your eyes, Father. You've shown us the path to greatness and have encouraged us through your words to pursue greatness, not for our own selfish ambition, Father, but for your glory, for your honor, so that in small ways and in big ways, God, this world will see who you are. Father, it's so fitting at this time of year when it seems that people are a lot more receptive to talking about Jesus and to hearing about Jesus and to being in church 
And Father, I hope that we take advantage of this while we have that opportunity in our culture, Father, and in our community. God, that we would take advantage to proclaim your gospel, to proclaim your good news. That you have provided a way for us to have peace with you. And for us to experience true joy. For us to be able to love each other the way you have loved us. God, we thank you so much for everything that you have done that we absolutely don't deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.